last year, everybody, it was very, very fraught. Everybody was freaking out. It was not constructive. But at the end of the day, right, it's like everything else. It's business. And everybody's got to go into the room and everybody's going to come out not that happy. Hello and Happy New Year. This is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. It's Tuesday, January 2nd. I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. Isabella is wrapping up her holiday break, so you just have me today. We're jumping into 2024 with a close look at some of the biggest issues in real estate heading into New York's legislative session. That starts tomorrow. And last year was a bit of a bummer all around. Developers were looking for an extension or a reboot of the 421A tax abatement. Most real estate folks will tell you that program is the only way they've been able to develop apartment buildings in the city. The abatement waives property taxes for a number of years, so long as the developer sets aside a certain percentage of the units in their new building as affordable. Without that tax break, developers say projects just do not pencil out. And since the break expired in June 2022, we have seen evidence of those claims. Project filings have more or less fallen off a cliff. And the dearth of new construction is a big problem in New York. Rents remain just a touch below record highs, and affordability continues to plague tenants citywide. The talk on the street last year was that some form of 421A could be traded for some form of good cause eviction, which is the measure that tenant advocates are pushing for. Good cause is a protection against eviction in housing court, so here's a scenario in which it would apply. A landlord raises the rent by more than 3%. The tenant doesn't pay the rent, and the landlord files to evict. The tenant could then tap that protection and stay in their home. So landlords say this equates to universal rent control. If a tenant hypothetically could stop paying rent, if a landlord hiked the rent too high, and then remain in their apartment, owners are saying, look, that's a de facto cap on rent. But on the other end of the spectrum, tenant groups don't love 421A. They think it's a handout to developers. Others take issue with the affordability requirements of the program. They think they don't go deep enough, so it's not actually targeting the New Yorkers who need it most. So all that is to say, we have these two conflicting measures at the forefront of real estate's concerns as we head into this session. And to parse out whether we might be able to reach some type of a deal, we're talking to Alicia Glenn. She's the CEO of M Squared, which is a women-led firm that invests and develops and advises on the construction of mixed-income housing. But in her past life, she served as the deputy mayor for housing and economic development under Mayor Bill de Blasio. And she helped to spearhead the most recent 421A program, the one that expired in June 2022. So we'll chat with her shortly. But first, here's the news you may have missed over the holidays. So on the Friday before Christmas, senior reporter Catherine Brunzel stayed up late to break the news that New York Governor Kathy Hochul had signed a bill that landlords believe will be, quote, disastrous. Here's Catherine with the rundown of what happened. The governor waited until the very last minute to act on this measure. The The bill broadens the definition of fraud, which landlords believe will lead to a wave of rent overcharge cases. Fraud is really critical in those cases because if a tenant is able to show that fraud occurred, they are able to use older rent history to prove that they were overcharged and that their rent should be rolled back. The, the measure also makes changes to how rent is set for vacant rent-stabilized units that have been combined. 
the state's housing regulator actually made those changes earlier this year, but the bill codifies those changes and, you know, potentially makes it harder for landlords to, to challenge those rules. What's, what's sort of tricky here is that the governor signed this measure with chapter amendments, which means that the legislature is going to have to pass another bill that reflects changes that the governor asked for in the measure. Unfortunately, we don't know the extent of those changes because the chapter amendment bills have not been released yet. Um, so we're still waiting to see to what extent this measure will be changed. But the governor did indicate that there will be a number of changes to this measure. Title company First American Financial on December 21st suffered a cyber attack. First American handles settlement services and title insurance for homeowners, um, and it interacts with sellers and brokers, mortgage lenders, investors. So basically, all parties involved in a real estate transaction. The biggest fear around that attack is maybe one that you would expect, uh, delays and closings. The attack was also the third to hit the industry this year. Fidelity National, which is a title insurer, faced one in mid-November, and in late October, Mr. Cooper, which is a major U.S. mortgage lender, dealt with its own attack. This is not the first cyber attack that First American has weathered. There was another breach in 2019, and First American had to pay a million dollars in a settlement. Reporter Harrison Connery nabbed an exclusive interview with Mauricio Umansky, whom we've had on the podcast before. The founder and CEO of Brokerage, the agency, settled a third lawsuit over a deal he did in Malibu. Here's Harrison with the details of what went down. So this all started in 2016 when Umansky got the listing at 3620 Sweetwater Mesa in Malibu. The U.S. government was making the vice president of Equatorial Guinea uh, sell the home after they decided that he had bought it with stolen funds. So Umansky uh, sells the house to a friend of his named Mauricio Oberfeld for $32 million and then invested in the property himself. And the pair of them flipped the home the following year for a $37 million profit. Uh, but then in 2018, the lawsuit started to come. So first, the vice president of Equatorial Guinea sued Umansky, alleging that he steered uh, the sale to Oberfeld at a discount so the two of them could maximize their profits uh, on the resale. Uh, Western World Insurance, Umansky's insurance company, filed its own lawsuit that year. And then eventually in 2019, someone who bid on the property, Sam Hakim, filed a lawsuit along with his agent, Aton Siegel. Western World dropped their suit pretty quickly uh, after Umansky filed a countersuit against them. And Umansky was able to settle with Obiang, the seller, the vice president of Equatorial Guinea. But the, the lawsuit that Hakeem brought forth didn't settle until mid-December. And for the first time, Umansky felt like he could talk about what had happened. The case got a lot of attention due to the, the sale point, due to Umansky's presence on our reality TV and, you know, maybe due to the initial seller as well. But essentially, Hakeem alleged that he'd made a higher verbal offer uh, on the property, and Umansky advised him not to put it in writing, then steered the sale towards Oberfeld. While the case was being litigated, uh, there was an accusation that Umansky hadn't turned over all his text messages uh, as he was instructed to do by the judge. And that got picked up by, by some outlets. Umansky has maintained throughout this whole process that he's done nothing wrong. And the media coverage around the case got under his skin a little bit. One, one point to note is that Umansky pointed towards the terms of the settlement of this most recent case as evidence of his innocence. So he didn't have to pay either plaintiff any money. 
but he did have to make a $75,000 donation to a pro-Israel uh, foundation as part of the settlement. And and Umansky has also said that Hakeem never made a higher verbal offer, that the verbal offers don't really count. You have to put it in writing. So, And one more quick hit. Santander Bank won the final pool of Signature Bank's loans, and that concludes the FDIC's auction of that $33 billion loan book. Santander nabbed a 20% stake in a joint venture holding $9 billion in Signature's rent-stabilized debt, and it took that pot for $1.1 billion. Now, on to our interview with Alicia Glenn. I am the founder and CEO of M Squared. M Squared is a development and investment platform that really focuses on creating really mixed income and mixed use communities and really thinking about how we need to think through addressing the housing crisis with a slightly different lens. In American housing policy for so long, it's really been about having uh, a plan for producing affordable housing for low-income people and then letting the market sort of take its course. And what we've seen over the past you know, 10 years is, A, that the market is getting away from people who are not low-income, right? Mm-hmm. It's increasingly hard for people to find housing that is affordable for them. And then the, the other thing that really motivates my work and was part of the reason why we formed M Squared was, a little bit I say the science of the obvious, but I mean, the real estate industry is about the most male-dominated industry there is, right? And you, know, you just get to a point in your life where you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Obviously, there are a lot of women on the brokerage side, but in the sort of sticks and bricks of really building and investing capital, there's so few women. And I thought it's about time that, you know, somebody with my resume and my background can't do it. Then, you know, how are we going to really create a new generation of women leaders? Let's use the affordable housing talk to jump into the 421A discussion. So we saw that tax abatement expire year and a half ago or so. Um, There was a push for an extension last year and the idea would be that maybe good cause could be traded for that, good cause being a protection against eviction and housing court for tenants. But that didn't pan out. But we chatted a few months ago and you said, I don't know if it was about this specifically, but you said that you were optimistic about compromises being made solutions in the upcoming legislative session. So can you tell us a little bit about the complications there between those two measures and then what you think could pan out this year? Historically pro-development measures have always been coupled with a renewal of and a reevaluation of rent stabilization and rent mm-hmm. regulation. They were always sort of deliberately put together so that folks who are more concerned with tenant protections and the existing stock could leverage that with the need for developers and development and the public sector to really try to create programs that would encourage development. When they got delinked, and I think that happened in 2016, which is when we passed our 421A program, Affordable mm-hmm. New York, which is still, I guess, technically the program, even though it's expired. That's the framework that people are still using. When those two things got decoupled, I think that it created a little bit of a political morass in terms of what the traditional sort of big ugly is, right? What people used to call the big ugly when you would go up to Albany and everybody would sort of get in the room and figure out, okay, these are the changes that we're willing to make to strengthen 10 protections in return for getting more pro-development incentive programs. When those two things got pulled apart and rent stabilization, many, many amendments were made to rent stabilization in 2019, right after I left. I think that it really represented a sort of a fundamental shift 
in how business gets done in Albany. And so the traditional stakeholders were a little bit left scratching their head as to how are we going to put together a deal because now we're not on the same timeline. Fair, yeah. Right? Because things are packages, right? It's policy. Sure, sure. And the 2019 rent stabilization amendments were fairly draconian given the prior history. And I think a lot of people in the real estate industry felt that it had gone too far. So what it did is it, it empowered the advocates and I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I absolutely understand and sympathize with the idea of whatever the right set of tenant protections are in order to create stable housing for particularly working class people, I think it should be statewide. And so I think that those are really good and important conversations to be having. And I think that increasingly, hopefully that kind of conversation about what is the right sort of return for that housing stock? And how do we, in return for potentially limiting to some extent the return on that asset class, how do we also create a set of incentives to create new housing, which we absolutely need? Last year, everybody, it was very, very fraught. Everybody was freaking out. It was not constructive. I would say it was verging on sort of ideological, a lot of shrieking by everybody, a lot of threatening, (laughs) a lot of posturing. Uh But at the end of the day, right, it's like everything else. It's business. And everybody's got to go into the room and everybody's going to come out not that happy. And that's when you know you've done a good job. Neither side is running around saying, you know, they've saved the republic or that, you know, developers win. It's got to be, like it always is, some real discussion based in the true economics of what is going on in the marketplace, which given where interest rates are right now, you know, the rental stock is in serious danger of falling into dilapidated states. We need to have reasonable rent increases, reasonable opportunities for people to make a return on their asset, but it's a core asset. They don't need to make 15s, 20s, 25s. And we know, given the fundamental problem with New York State's taxation system, that we have to have a tax incentive because nobody is actually serious about reforming property taxes, notwithstanding Mm -hmm. every commission and every, you know, we've all seen that movie a hundred times. Both of these things have to happen. And... I think now, now that everybody's calmed down a little bit, the governor's had another year in office. The advocates, I think, have understood that not all owners are terrible and evil. There is a real issue in the financing markets and that it's not in their best interest to starve the landlords. And I think that the developers also understand, and I hope this is true, that by expanding the types of units and the geographies that get some de minimis protections, that that is a good thing in the world. And at the end of the day, they got to build buildings and we got to get moving. So I do feel, long way of saying, that there is a path forward and we just need leadership to drive the deal. And that's, I think, the core question is who is going to be the leader of that effort? It literally has to be some people or a set of people have to say, we're getting in this room and nobody gets out alive until we're done. But I think there's a, there, there is a deal to be done. There were critiques of the 421A that happened in 2016. I wanted you to talk about what you think was good about that program and like on a granular level, what could be improved? Well, I mean, the 2016 changes were really fundamental in a couple of different ways. Number one, we got rid of any tax abatements or exemption for condominium. And that was hugely important because really they were unnecessary. So the tax expenditure in order to 
stimulate luxury condo production is just bad public policy. Luxury condo production will occur based on a set of driver, sort of demand drivers that are pretty much tax agnostic. Mm -hmm. So that was always a big giveaway that we were very focused on eliminating. Number two, always felt that it was really important that we actually create a series of tiered options because, again, neighborhoods are different, building typologies are different, costs are different, underlying assessed values are different. And so I think by creating um, a scenario that allowed some flexibility in the way in which the affordability was provided, taking into account whether at the end of the day we were more focused on reaching much lower income people or also trying to then think about ways to serve more moderate income New Yorkers was a massive change in in the way it had always been, right? It had just been like an 80-20 sort of world. And I personally have always felt that housing policy and subsidy should be allocated across a much wider people, you know, set of families and people who are in need, in need meaning they're rent burdened. Creating a series of different ways in which you could provide the affordable housing was incredibly important to me and a big shift. The other thing was changing the abatement the exemption period to match, to get smarter about capital markets, right? Mm. I mean, I had come from Goldman Sachs and spent a lot of time in the capital markets and understood the financing, I think, probably a little better than some of my successors who weren't really housing finance people, not my success, my predecessors. So, you know, being able to match the length of the exemption with permanent financing really also allowed us to have more production. Because when you're when you're matching, that really helped the permanent lenders get more comfortable with this. So there was like a whole series of things which we were putting together to make the program easier to use, serve more New Yorkers, not waste money, tax expenditure on luxury condos, and also make sure that we were it is the only program that allows there to be affordable housing in high-income neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really, really important. And one of the, the tragedies of not having a mixed income tax incentive is that you do wind up then, which is a little bit like what's happening in the city right now, is with the city and the state financing 100%, generally fairly all low or very low income projects mm-hmm. that continue to be located in neighborhoods where people say, why, why is all the low income housing being built in those neighborhoods? Well, the answer is because the math really doesn't work and that's where the sites are. Leveraging the private sector right, to deliver affordable housing, A, is a way better use of tax expenditure and B, allows you to create more mixed income neighborhoods. And to go back to where we are today, I think some small tweaks, you know, I think that the there's a lot of discussion, since you want to get granular, on the option that allows people to meet their requirement by doing up to 130% of AMI. I think there's been a lot of learnings from that. Very difficult to rent up. And, may, and you could argue that you're subsidizing higher income people. I don't really think that's true. I think people who make 130% of AMI, families in New York City, are struggling to find housing that they can afford. But I think that if there was some position where that came down a little bit as part of a a grand bargain, I think we could live with that. The percentage or how much the apartments are running for? How much the apartments are running for. I think, you know, changing the top AMI, I think if that becomes a really important piece of of the puzzle for legislators, I can understand that. 
let's jump over to Good Cause. So Good Cause will put a cap on rents if a landlord tries to evict a tenant. It provides a defense. If you are sued, you can defend your non-payment because your landlord raised your rent more than X. And I, the X, I think, is still being heavily negotiated. That's true. I think what I was getting at is that landlords are thinking about it as a de facto cap, which is not necessarily true because it's only going to come into play in house and court, as you said. So there's that. And then there's also the thought that if something such as good causes in place, it would disincentivize development because. That's utter, that I think is, that argument is ridiculous. Okay. Let's get into that then. That one is ridiculous. Cause first of all, development, any, <laughs> that is so ridiculous. I don't even know how to respond to that. Are you telling me that a New York developer is not going to build a building because of good cause? Well, that's insane because first of all, they're all building it subject to 421A anyway. They're all rent regulated, number one. I don't believe that there has been one rental building built in New York City in the past 30 years that doesn't have 421A or some form of incentive that triggers rent stabilization. So then you'd be talking about buildings in New York City that are under four units, six units? Mm-hmm. Six, right? Under six. six. I mean, that just that statement is insane. So there's absolutely, in New York City, no connection between good cause and disincentivizing housing. That's ridiculous. Now, in some small city upstate, maybe, but I also would be very surprised because the sort of fundamental economics of those housing markets, those folks, if they're building a building and they can, and that makes sense on the base rents, right? It doesn't set a low starting rent build your building and you charge $5,000 a month for a one bedroom. No responsible underwriter, and I'm in the business of investing in housing, underwrites more than 3% rent growth a year anyway. So I don't, I really think that this idea that nobody will build a building because after they set their going in rents, they can't raise them more than 5% as a defense to a non-payment claim, it's nonsensical. And that's why part of the problem last year is everybody was screaming and yelling at each other, but it didn't make any sense when you just actually had a conversation about it and talked to people who finance housing. You said, I think a few months ago when we were talking that it would be, I'm not sure if you said not bad or good for housing production, but is there anything else in that argument that we didn't just talk about that you think is, you know, important? I mean, I don't think it, I don't think that housing production and good cause are related. The bigger issue, which is really about rent regulation in general, which is how do we have a rent regulation framework that doesn't force landlords and investors to fail to invest in their properties? That's the problem. Because if people can't get a reasonable return on their investment, and part of the challenge is that for like the past 10 years until last summer, the returns that that folks were getting on, you know, multifamily rental in New York were very high relative to the risk. And so I think what, what, what we have to see is that there's going to be a reset in the marketplace, right? Again, and I often say this to potential investors in my own funds, my own businesses, you know, if, if you expect 15, 16, 17% returns on rent-stabilized housing in New York, or that's because that's what you've been getting because they were able to 
you know, work the old system in order to, to get those kinds of rent increases. There's a long way between that sort of high return and figuring out how do you make sure that the system, the regulatory system, doesn't prevent people from investing in their properties and upgrading them and doing the green work now that we all need to do right, and then providing right. a reasonable return on your capital? And is that an eight? Is that a nine? Is that a 10? I don't know. We could debate what that reasonable return is. But I think what has to happen is sort of a fundamental repricing of what the return is. And so I think that right now we have sort of crossed the Rubicon where it's gone too far, where right now, given where interest rates are and the limited opportunities to have rent increases and to provide a return on capital investment, we need to sort of recalibrate and figure out what that right center, if you will, position is. Because we really wouldn't want to be in a situation, right, where people don't you know, go from dirty oil to electrification, where people are not maintaining their buildings because they're like, why should I put a million dollars in my building if I can never recoup that money? I mean, that seems like a reasonable thing for an owner to say or an investor to say. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really, we have to correct and figure out what we think is the right balance of a tenant paying more in order to have a higher quality product. And a reworking of the 2019 rent law, I'd imagine. Do you think that's something that's on the legislature's mind at all? Absolutely not. But I, <laughs> I really think in what I said, and I guess I'm like some sort of a bomb thrower. I'm like, guys, and this is where the advocates and the, the legislators who are for good cause, I think it would be a really good idea if they showed some willingness to sit down and talk about how to you know, rework some of the provisions that were added in 2019. I think that that would show um, goodwill. I think it would show a recognition that a lot of the housing that houses their constituents is most at risk, and the city doesn't have the money to just keep bailing people out. At the end of the day, there's a budget. There's only so many dollars, and the city can't just keep feeding these buildings forever, and you really wouldn't want that. That's not a sustainable model. And so how do we come up with a sustainable model where the private sector can earn a decent risk-adjusted return on their investment and tenants are not getting screwed. And if that means your rent goes up somewhere between 3 and 5% a year or 3% or whatever it is, that is in fact the way it should be. And also that encourage some real capital investment, including the sustainability pieces, which we all have a stake in making the world greener. So we got to figure out how we're going to finance that and, and who's going to bear the cost of that. What do you think would force those conversations about moderating HSTPA? Do we need to see like the bottom fall out and a bunch of foreclosures, or do you think we could get there before that? Well, let's hope we can get there before that because foreclosures are no fun for anybody. No. Right? Yeah. And you just get bottom feeders coming in. And that's, I can tell you, I've been to that movie. You know, having distressed debt buyers and, you know, guys who are just, they're just like, you know, guys who are just, you know, buying distressed notes and reselling them and buying them for pennies. That movie is not good for humans. So I, I hope to God it's not that we have to go through that. I think that the governor and the mayor, historically, it's always been the mayor of the city of New York has led on housing issues, right? That's always been the story. Maybe and I think, you know, the governor is trying to be smart right now about sort of scaling back on all the grandiose, very interesting ideas she had. I would suggest and argue that both the governor and the mayor 
need to make a decision that this is a serious priority and they're going to use political capital for it. As I say, somebody has to lead, you know, lead the troops across the desert here. Like, you know, there's an opportunity right now because I think that there's some smarter, more reasonable voices on the left who are understanding the ramifications of doing nothing. Hmm. And I think that there are a little bit of a generational change starting to happen on the developer side, right? Just natural sort of changes in the industry um, where people hopefully begin to understand that, again, we all have a stake in affordability, just, you know, as an economy, as a city, as a, you know, uh, as a community. Who are those voices on the left who you think are maybe like moving a little bit more towards the middle or just like opening their eyes to what's going on with the rent-stabilized housing stock? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'd feel weird sort of naming names, but I do think that a lot of those young legislators are, you have to sort of be in it for a couple of years to really see what it means, right? And to make the transition from being a candidate and an ideologue, right? Trying to create a message that excites people about your candidacy, right? There's that. You see this even with AOC, right? You see this with a lot of people. They're not selling out, they're waking up, right? And they're realizing that a lot of these ideas and and hopes and policies that they share based on their values are all things that I share too in many ways. But you also have to just sort of begin to see, not that we can't, we should, we should constantly be pushing and pressing and changing the system, but at the end of the day, right, there's a lot of different priorities, there's a lot of different constituencies, there's a lot of stakeholders, right? So you might have been elected as a legislature being vehemently anti-developer and anti-landlord. And then suddenly you realize that half your constituents own some buildings Mm -hmm. and they're like your friends and they're small business owners. And they're coming to you saying, we can't afford our gas bill anymore for our building. And we don't want to freeze our tenants out, but I'm not allowed to file an MCI. And so I think that what happens is that you can have all of those really progressive values. And then you begin to see what it's really like when you're not just running for office and trying to rile people up. You're trying to actually make policy that works. And and I think that's why I feel some hope that in a weird way, and also a lot of these guys came into office or came into being on the scene, if you will, during COVID, which is a very weird time, right? To, To start your legislative or administrative career. You know, you went from being an activist and an organizer to suddenly like in the middle of the biggest crisis of your lifetime. Yeah. So I feel like the smarter young legislators, both at the city and the state level, are beginning to see what it means to take ideas and to operationalize them and understanding some of the unintended consequences of what sounded like really great ideas when they were running for office and realizing that it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. 